You can, you can keep the lion out of the cupboard, but you can't keep the Indian out of the den. Welcome to episode 39 of the Off and Beat Podcast. Unfortunately, I am still your host, Clint, and it is 1134 on a Tuesday. Um, I realize when you need your targ. I said, Tar, holy crap, Clint, you are really losing your shit. Oh, felt like a character in the movie of us, the Jordan Peele one, except I, by default, can't relate to it. But I realized when you have a car side assistance to your insurance company and it's covered, um, for some reason, they have a very hard time, you know, Making sure they can actually provide that assistance. You try to get it towed at 2 o'clock. I said, oh, it'll be 150 minutes. I'm like, no problem. I literally got nowhere to be. And three hours later, I get a message. Hey, sorry. Sorry for the inconvenience, but uh, you can go fuck yourself today. And uh, won't be able to get your car. Like, um, your tow service is 24 hours, though. The place I was specifically supposed to get it. Okay. And I was like, all right. Um, so I called, placed in another order, right? And they said, we got you. They said, we reached someone. They said, they'll be there in 60 minutes. Not even 10 minutes fucking later. They called back and said, oh, Sorry, uh, they're kind of short-staffed tonight. Uh, they won't be able to make it out to you tonight. Again, I was like, you know what? I understand. Short-staffed. I'm not even mad at the companies, the tow truck companies. I'm not mad at them. But apparently they're supposed to come out tomorrow at 11 a.m. and uh, uh, get my car. And they're like, hey, just try to make sure you can put it in neutral. I'm like, um, can't really put it in neutral if you can't shift the gears if the car won't turn on. But anyways, but yeah, that is the uh, gratitude I have for today. You know what? I wasn't even mad. You know, I just accepted that would be another day in paradise in this lovely bedroom of sweet serendipity. I can't tell if the camera's blurry or if this light. Jesus Christ. I think I'm going blind. That's probably why I'm always getting headaches on my right side. Headaches on the right side. I wish someone would come over and say hello at least one fucking time. But hey, guess I'll uh, tow a fine line today. Ha ha. Oh, bringing out an old classic. He's a classic, man. Yeah. You know, it's, um, but, you know, like I mentioned in a previous episode, there's been some good things come out of this. Um, I've learned to find socks to go around my ankles again. Not be so insecure about showing my calves. Even though they're shrinking by the dozen days, because they doesn't appear to be there a whole lot anymore. Um, depends how you, uh, tending to it. Oh, it's going to be one of those. I'm just going to be pulling puns out of the ass. But sometimes you got to crack the door open, and sometimes you got to spread it like a bald eagle and uh, show her yours and say, play along. Fly with me. And tell her she's the flyest girl in the world when she's peckering at your booty hole. You know what? You got to just uh, you gotta experiment. I did have someone tell me, I had someone recently explain to me that they weren't a hoe. Because we were talking about something. I'm not going to give personal info or details. But basically, you know, they were talking about how, yeah, I'm looking for, I'm looking to settle. Not like settle, settle down, but to look in the just fine and be with one person, have a boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. Instead of, you know, just getting ran through. But 
And I was like, hmm. I was like, oh, you had a hoe phase? Essentially, you know, breaking the words down. There was a conversation between like, oh, you probably, let me guess, got tired of the hoe phase. And she was like, it wasn't a hoe phase. It was an experimental phase. And you can't make this shit up. You just can't. <clears throat> it's People will find, I don't want to specify to girls, but people, and particularly girls, will find the word things to make the same thing appear more presentable than it is. It's like, it's okay just to say you had a lot of sex with a lot of different people in a period of time. Just don't try to use the disguise words, experiment. I was just a living life. I was just having fun. It's like, just say you had a lot of sex. Experiment. Are you just basically saying you let people uh, try their hypothesis on you a lot of times? You saying they were trying to spill their beaker? And hopefully you have a little leaker. And hopefully you don't have one. That means you're at risk. Uh, Let's talk about gender fluidity at the highest maximum. But you didn't want to take the security. It's funny how people want to be experimental with things, but they didn't want to experiment in biology class. You know, to actually learn about your cellular system. Or, you know, bio. You know, how your body truly operates. Why it's important for, you know, photosynthesis and shit. For the environment. But no. Now we want to experiment with humans inside of us. Beautiful world we live in. So beautiful. But you know what? It's probably good that we don't have a lot of people that actually think straight. Because if we did, there wouldn't be communities to separate each other. But yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so some a podcast I've been listening to recently is uh, the Burt Cast with Burt Kreischer. He is someone that has grown on me. Pause. No pun intended. Uh, Burt Kreischer has actually grown on me. Um, He's a comedian who lives in L.A. He's one of those that he started to get his money and do later in life. He's one of those that truly... He has a weird story. He actually inspired the Van Wilder as we know it. Where... Dude is in college for seven years, and, you know, he it's kind of like one of those comedy drama movies where it's mainly comedy. Brian Reynolds, back in the day before he was, uh, you know, getting in the wade of Deadpool. And it's, it was, uh, I didn't know that until recently when he, because Burt Kreischer was on. He went to Florida State University, and they were, you know, they were ranked the number one party school. So for Rolling Stone came there, their interview, they were first interviewing like, um, they, you know, the school, like school board, but the president. It's like a lighthearted article, and then they were trying to do the specific fraternities and stuff. You know how they really get down down there. Then they ran to him, who's like, literally the life of the party. And if you listen. To his podcast and stuff, you can see why. He's a very gravitating, he's a very fun person to be around. And I've been really, I've been really obsessed with listening to his podcast recently. And it's not just I listened to the last three or four. Like, I've looked up older ones. Like, he interviewed Dan Cook, which, Dan Cook is a fascinating story for a lot of reasons. He used to be, I would say he was the first comedian... That I was introduced to at a young age by my brother. He had a bunch of Kool-Aid bits. It was a combination of crazy energy on stage. And it wasn't really about the punchline with him. It was more about the energy, the uh, the direct eye contact. Like You literally feel like when he's on a stage circling around, you really feel like he's like talking to everyone. He's truly connecting and energizing with everyone. He was probably, by technicality, one of the most successful comedians in the past 20 years. He trailblazed of getting famous through the internet and then getting opportunities for specials and just blowing up. But 
Anyways, going back to Bert. Oh, Bertie Bert. Going down to Sesame Street. I'll bite that cookie. But, uh, yeah. Uh, he was Bert. Bert was uh, earning his uh, place in comedy. See, Bert and Ernie. Earning. Uh, sorry, it was there for the taking. I had to snatch it. Um, but, yeah, he was starting to make a place in comedy. He was coming from Florida State. And he was there like six years or something. Like he he was one of those like six year uh, students, and literally immediately like going from college, the Rolling Stone article got him big, and then he did one stand up. He did one open mic, and it was packed because he got famous off the Rolling Stone, and then he he got and then after that one open mic. He basically got flew out for a TV gig. Or maybe he did that one open mic. And then after that one open mic, he moved to, uh, I think he went to New York. He either went to New York or LA. And he moved there, did the open mic there. And he, after one open mic, or after one open mic at one of those comedy places. It may have been the comedy cellar or something. And an executive from a TV show in NBC, Will Smith's company, wanted him to, at the time, it was like Will Smith's production company. It was around 2005, which was around like the Hitch era, um, the iRobot stage, like that type of. But Will Smith was going to do like a TV sitcom. And Bert was going to be like the white neighbor. And it was going to be like, probably like a modern day... um, Trying to think of an example. I don't really watch sitcoms like that. So, I don't know. It's like that modern day TBS one with, I think it was on NBC though, where it was like Cedric the Entertainer. And it was this neighbor who was white. And it was kind of like they lived next to each other. And it wasn't really racially motivated, but it was definitely that funny dynamic that made it kind of interesting. But yeah. Anyways, so. And. Whatever reason, the pilot, you know, shot pilot, and they shot a couple of episodes, but never really made it on TV. And so he basically went, he was skyrocketing, and then boom. He's like, what would I do now? And he's like, so he went back to comedy, and he really honed in, honed in on that. But then he, but then he ended up getting a, um, I think he got another, he got another TV show. He got on another TV show type of thing, and he was doing like a lot. A lot of comedians when they're in, when they haven't blown up yet, and they're in the middle of their career. Uh, LA executives they'll see them, scout them before they get big, so they don't have so they don't have the leverage of I'm making so much money in comedy. You're gonna have to just give me a shitload of money. So they got them at a decent price, young age, younger age, rising. Put him on a show. I think after like a year or two, the show got canceled or whatever. And, you know, his friends, the Bill Burr, the Joe Rogans, common theme in this story. Um, they it, it, they were really great friends as someone who's not only in this field, but see that, like, oh, like, you're making this much. Oh, you can make that in stand-up. They said, oh, you can make that in stand-up. As long as you actually, like, fully focus on it and put in the time then he said once a, once he got fired from um the travel channel or whatever because they were basically saying that was interfering with him the travel channel show he was doing and um so it was like a blessing in disguise they got fired and then he went straight hard for like six years like the next six years he did nothing but comedy nothing but stand-up no distractions nothing that's all he focused and did and then he's like one of the biggest uprising. I wouldn't even say uprising because I think he's pretty made. He's got a couple specials. But in terms of now he's become more of a household name because not only of who his friends are in close association, the Tom Segura's, the Joe Rogan's, and stuff like that, but just the fact that he actually is that when you have good friends around you that truly have the best intentions for what you want to do, I think it's a great example of being honest with your friend, but
but they didn't like force them like look you could do that in stand-up so don't use that as, as an excuse and they were very humble because Bert started to film himself being on tv you know film himself in some ways and they're like that's great but wow you're doing you know spending 20 weeks a year doing a show that you're just basically only doing for the money and you get free travel you could be working on the crap the whole reason why you came out there to begin with don't don't forget why you came out here don't forget what your first dream was don't forget what even got you these opportunities and I think that's a good reminder to have as friends. If you were lucky enough to have those type of friends, to be real with you, but be real with you in your best interests. There's a difference between people that are just being honest with someone and they're just being kind of assholes and doesn't really benefit anything. But when you know what that person says they want, but you think they're kind of going off kilter, even though it may not be in a necessarily terrible direction per se, but... It could be a, they may be, it's like, you're going to spend six or seven years doing this travel TV or TV show. And if that's what you want to do, fine. But that's six or seven years that is going to sacrifice your stand-up comedy that you haven't established yourself in yet. And it's really, and stand-up's one of those things where, as I'm not one myself, at least not yet, but I'm learning the craft and you know and the beginning stages of a lot of the stuff but it's something that it's, it's one of those professions like anything it's like with you know p- people think the second you get a degree in college like you oh you've learned everything so now you just have to go apply it it's like no the degree just means basically that like you've learned enough to not go out there and kill someone in your field if you're dealing with serious shit. Or you can go, but you still have to be trained and you still have to learn, especially when it's an evolving profession, like being a doctor. You have to learn new information. You get medicines that they find out are not beneficial. Find out, oh, people who are a certain skin complexion are more susceptible to certain things. So you're going to prescribe person with a certain skin complexion that may be more like 70% more vulnerable to die than someone else to a certain pathogen no you need to keep up on research and keep learning so you don't make that grave mistake and like any profession it takes constant it's like you're basically still studying but you still are being paid to be a professional and with comedy it's a very similar, obviously not as serious ramifications on daily human life, but it's definitely something that um, it takes it takes constant repetition. Like literally, the main thing is you can sit there and write on paper. You can sit there and work out bits to yourself all day long, eight, nine, ten hours a day, and pretend to yourself that you're doing work. It's like, but doing all having notebooks of writing. And that's something I've even had the knowledge. Like I have notebooks for a bunch of different things I've written and full of a bunch of different things. And it's like, all that's great. But until you go out on the stage and see if it even translates to be able to be rememberable, something you could do in repetition, something you would want to do in repetition, something that not just you think is funny, but something that enough people have laughed to, they're like, all right, let me expand this. Let me see how far I can take this. Let's see what direction actually works. And the only way you get that is by going up on stage. And like, it's crazy when you hear, I listen to a lot of stand-up comedy podcasts and they talk about comedy and what they had to do to get there and how they still basically do a lot of the same things. They're still, the main thing is keep sharpening the knife. Don't let the knife get dull, which basically means you still like you people people think like the big dogs like they go they do like they do their tours and then they do special and then they just take off until they're ready to do their next special or tour it's like no they're doing a bunch of they're basically like starting over each time they're going to either the comedy store in la or the comedy cellar they're going to any club they could go to for open mics when you're a bigger name though it's not as hard to get open mics. You probably don't do open mics. You're probably scheduled to do stuff and you work out new material and you kind of 
get more stage time. But when you are just open mic and stuff, your main thing is you're trying to get on stage every night. Sometimes you want to try to get on multiple stages in the same night if you can, like do three spots in one night, some four, some five, like at different clubs. Like they'll drive around the different clubs for four hours just to do some spots. And that's crazy when you think about like not only what it takes, but the dedication. And on top of that, just how genuinely, how hard, you know, for lack of a sophisticated word, how how difficult that is to sit there and be in front of, let's just say, 50 people, even on the smallest number, and go up there and possibly embarrass yourself, right? And there's a lot of people that are just afraid to even... A lot of people say they don't care what other people think, but they won't get on the stage and perform something if they want to because they're afraid of that fear. And make sure I stay on. I'm trying to stay on the right track here. Um, But something that I've learned about listening to all these shows, listening to all these comedians talk, is that there's a lot of things in comedy that translate to real life. I've noticed, like, a lot of, like, it takes, uh, they they always respect someone who just goes up there. Like, they will not respect anyone who just tries to be a stand-up com- comedian on YouTube or people who just want to call themselves, you know, real comedians, but they've never actually gone on the stage or they'll only do it in front of groups they know will like their stuff. And they won't just go in front of anyone. Like, they won't respect you. They don't care how famous you are. They don't care if you made any money. All they care about is, are you funny? And are you truly fearless? Because a lot of people, though, even ones that go up on stage, will you really go there with what you're trying to do? Will you really try some shit? Or will you play it safe? And... Other comedians that it's a peer craft, you know, it's a lot of, in the younger years before you have kids and stuff, a lot of them just hang out at the clubs and shit. Combination of you having constant dialogue, people that understand your lifestyle, people that relate to you. It's like the only people that are going to understand what you do. And, you know, a lot of that stuff translates to real life because doing the, the hardest thing you know, the thing, the hardest thing is almost all of them. Like almost every single 98% of people I've ever heard do it. They said the first time the accomplishment is just going up there and speaking. It doesn't even matter how good your shit is. It's like, it's honestly probably best if you completely shit the bed. Like completely shit it. The first like there are people that, like some of them will say they bomb for years before they actually get good, and that creates a resiliency of oh I just need to work better, and I just need to continue working on this. I need to continue getting better and realize oh this isn't just everyday humor. Like this is actual work it takes, and that translates to other aspects of life because I do believe a lot of people just think that. You, it's just about, like, if you just show up, that's enough. And showing up is half the thing. But it's about showing up and being willing to shit the bed and being willing to embarrass yourself, being willing to put yourself out there, and whatever and whatever you're trying to do. Like, I'll say for me, or you'll hear from a lot of people who... You'll hear from a lot of people that are severely obese, so I'm not really talking about me at this point, but they said one of the biggest fears about going to the gym is, you know, obviously doing the work, but it's being, it's feeling like they're being looked at, knowing that people are judging out their ass, knowing that people are sitting there uh, snarkling at you, you know, making assumptions, you know. And the reality is a lot of people that, that, you know, if they're at that stage where it's 
They're completely overweight. They struggle doing the simplest of things. It, you know, it, it can be very deflating to see, to know that, like, people there are going to be making fun of you type of shit. Which, I think, it's, of course, it's idiotic to make fun of someone who's trying to better themselves. I think that's just idiotic in general. But it'll be like, some people will literally not go to the gym during the day. And they'll wait till, they'll, you know, if you have a 24-hour gym, they'll literally wait till 2 or 3 a.m. where there's almost no one. And they will schedule everything around to go at 3 a.m. Just so they don't feel judged. Which, you know what? Honestly, going at 3 a.m. is the best anyways. You can set up all the machines, all the plates, everything you want, however you want, and just rotate, cycle, whatever. It's relaxing. You can scream, groan. Oh, that hurts. Oh, my hammy. And you can sit there. Ah, you fucking bitch. Why'd you let yourself get like this? Ah. And then you just look in the mirror as you're running on the treadmill, the fucking glass mirror. For some reason, they just want you to look at yourself and the parking lot. It's like, ah, look, you fat fuck. But a lot of people generally like they will they will purposely go be afraid to go at certain times of day because people that are in the best shape typically not all the time but more times than not they like going during the hot spots of the day playing at fitness at three p.m. to seven you know uh, you may get a mixed bag at playing at fitness but. You know, Gold's Gym or just really any gym <clears throat> that has any capacity at any time. The hot, sexy motherfuckers. They're going to go between 3 to 7 p.m. Because it's basically like happy hour for body looking without looking like a creep. You be sitting there on the elliptical. Some girl running in front of you on a treadmill. You pretend you're keeping your eyes up to look at Sports Center. You're not. You don't give a fuck about the summer league highlights between Cade Cunningham and Jalen Green. No. You care about coming in her hands. Oh, oh God. That was so fucking bad. Jesus. But, and you know what? And a lot of people like to be looked at. But I'm getting off on the tangent here. Whatever. But the point is, is that a lot of people were afraid to be put themselves out there and be embarrassed. They're afraid to do, even if they go do workouts, they'll only do the ones that they feel secure and safe enough in. Like, like, I've, like for example, right now, like, if I was at a busy gym at 4 p.m., I'm not going to sit there and try to do a bunch of pull-ups or dips, or really anything that involves pulling my body weight, because I know it's not going to look that good. It's not that impressive, and it could be very self-defeating and... It's not very attractive to see for uh, people to see you struggling with pull-ups as a man. And like that may be an exercise I would avoid in front of people, but I would work on in silence. And you know, we all like look, there's me trying to hide my flaws. But you know, reality is a lot of people think that way. That's getting inside the mind 101 at the gym. The reason why a lot of people are very like, some people could be top-heavy, bottom-heavy, and I'm going to get back to the point of comedy and all that, but, like, if someone doesn't work on their legs, it's because if they already feel like, uh, I don't want to work out my legs in front of people because it's not developed, and then they continue, it's like, I'll just work out my chest, I'm starting to feel good, my arms are starting to feel good, The next thing you know, boom, you got a more plates, more dates type of shoulders, but then you got my legs, it's not a good combo. Uh, don't want to dealt a bad hand there. That's a more plates, more dates, dealt, dealt, yeah, whatever. But it's not wanting to practice, because really when you look at what performing is in general, regardless of what it is, you're putting all of your flaws, and when you're up there, it's all you. Everything you wrote, everything you thought of and you put up there. So when you get the praise, it feels great. And when you feel the lows, when you get booed off the stage or when no one's laughing, that's a direct reflection on you. (laughs) Where if you're up there performing 
Like if you're in a movie, right, and the movie does shit, like, yeah, you know, maybe performance-wise you can do what you need to do, but there's only, but you're not gonna, like, go home and cry about it or go home and feel like shit about yourself because you can always be like, well, you know, the director made me do this, the writing was terrible, this, that, and the other. But it's a stand up is like one of the most vulnerable, real authentic arts, or really, it's one of the most authentic forms of anything you could get out there. Of course, there's always politics in it, but that's why it's important to, even when politics are presented, when some people get pushed ahead of you that shouldn't. And some people that aren't as funny probably get Netflix specials before you. And you're just like, you know what? I trust what I'm doing, and it's going to pay off. I can only trust the shit I put out, and that's fine. And I think Bert followed that. He stuck to who he was. He's a dude who's, what, he's like 40-something now, and he's still the life of the party type of guy. And you can see the growth in him just as an interviewer, for example. And him having the close group of people that he kind of grew up, he kind of went up in the ranks with, or at least was peers and comrades in the same field. I think that means something. Bert has probably the greatest group of real friends in their profession, but all have their own lives because all of them have kids and shit. But yeah, you know, it was just something on my mind because I've been listening to this podcast recently, being at home. It's a nice podcast to listen to at night and hear him interview people, hearing his background and shit. I was really, honestly, I grew more respect for him. And, you know, he seemed, you know, sometimes he could seem like just someone who wants to talk about himself. But if you are that interesting and you live the kind of life he does and has, why wouldn't you want to talk about yourself? Uh, today's sponsor is Bang. But yeah. I will say one thing I have noticed, though. Just in for me in general. I used to watch stand-ups all the time. Like, younger. Like, a combination of what would be on Comedy Central. Like, I remember seeing Daniel Tosh's. I've remember seeing two of his stand-ups. I've seen, um... Dave Chappelle's stand-ups, his older stand-ups, plus I've seen some of his newer ones. Um, I remember seeing Dane Cook's stand-ups, obviously, back in the day. Trying to go through the ringer here, but... I would say if I had... Oh, Blue Collar Comedy Tour, I've seen Larry the Cable Guys. Um, I've seen Billy Ingvall's Jeff Foxworthy was some we watched growing up. And... I just kind of realized, like, now, there's so many more specials out. Because, obviously, now, like, anyone... I wouldn't say anyone, because I can't. But, you know, there's a bunch of... There's some questionable comedian stand-ups on uh, Netflix. But the main thing... Oh, Anthony Jeselnik, by the way, one of my favorite comedians. Side note. But one of the things that... I think also sometimes, like, I have no interest to really sit there and watch it. Oh, plus I've seen Bill Burr's stand-ups. Paper Tiger wasn't that great, to be honest. Just a personal preference, but teach their own. One thing, though, I will say about... I don't think it's it's coincidental that I'm not... Not that I speak for everyone that does or doesn't watch stand-ups. But I will say I've noticed just in a gauge, you kind of get a gauge of the pulse in the world. I am introduced to comedians now. I think podcasting has kind of, an ironic effect, it's kind of diminished the value of a special. Because 
essentially whatever you see in a special, you have probably, if you care enough to watch that special, you've probably seen them in other interviews and podcasts. And it's almost like you kind of already feel like you know a person. Or you probably feel like you've heard all their points of views on everything. I think one of the things that podcasting can sometimes probably hurt anyone, in effect, is as someone that does is that obviously not in their level, but I would say as a comedian, it's like if you're putting stuff out and you stuff you spent a lot of time working on a specific hour and all this shit, but then it's like for some reason I have no inclination. I've never seen a Joe Rogan uh stand up. I've never seen it. I think he's funny as hell and I love his podcast. I've never seen a Tom Segura stand up. I think I will say like I think the best of the I I think there's a good balance of I think the top tier comedians with the exceptions of a few maybe they would all be great podcasters but I don't think the top tier have a desire to do podcasting per se Um, I think it's like a good I wouldn't say middle balance because I'm not going to say a rank people, but like, it's a good, like, like the Dave Chappelle, I know he kind of does a podcast, but I don't think it's really like a full form open podcast, like him just talking shit. It's more of a calculated open type of thing. I think sometimes podcasts has probably hurt the one to the go see because they're so exposed, like, people are so exposed that, alright, you have hundreds and some thousands of episodes I could go see of you, that I could just listen to and enjoy in a different form where it feels a more, it doesn't, they're not necessarily well thought out jokes, and some people would say, comedy is the funniest when it's not written or planned, so when you're doing a podcast and things are just flowing and it feels like two people are just talking and funny shit happens, it feels like it's more funny than if you just listen to special and someone's breaking down each angle and breaking it down, breaking it down. And I do think that I do think that's something to keep an eye out for. Even though there's probably more specials than ever. I think really I think a comedian could never do a special nowadays if they didn't want to. And they could just do podcasting and they could just do they're touring and stand and stand-ups whenever and make a shitload of money. Now so you get money for your specials and shit. And I think that's one of those things that matters more for the art itself for what they're doing. They're putting all this time because they want a production value to be seen by the world. Something that they put time into hard work. So I think specials are more for the art. But if we're just talking about from a popularity, if we're just talking about from a um very surface level that doesn't matter what the comedian feels I don't think specials really mean a whole lot to a consumer anymore I can never listen to a one comedian I can never listen to a specific comedian set like you could pick a very high ranked comedian I could never listen to their set and just listen to their podcast and be just as happy and I may not feel a need to go see their special. I may not go need to go online and see a 10-minute clip they did. I may not. There's no obligation I have. So, but it, it could also just be the attention span aspect. I don't, maybe just people don't really, um. maybe people just, don't really care to just sit there and watch someone on a stage. Except if you're there in person. Unless you're there in person, like, obviously comedy in person is probably better. Everything in person is always better than on TV, in most cases. And I think comedy would definitely be one of those things where, like, you can get the effect and you can laugh, but you're not going to get the I'm dying of feeling the energy in the moment, everyone's laughter around you is contagious. Then if you just watch by yourself, a joke may come and it's, ha that's funny. But 
if you're around a bunch of people that all think it's funny, it's human nature for you to uh, comply to what everyone else is doing around you, and you're going to think it's funny, even if it's not that funny. And you may even think it's more funnier than it is. Like, oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Black Santa Claus. Hilarious. Whoever thought. And I would say one, I haven't seen it yet. And I think it's kind of a reflection of what I'm talking about. I have not seen the Bo Burnham Inside Netflix special. And to be honest, I don't even know if I really want to, for one. It's from what I know, I've seen people. I think I've seen like one music clip from it, and it wasn't bad. Uh, it was like the white, inst- the white girl Instagram, which I think the, I think the intention and direction of that song is funny, and it's some obviously relatable. Like everyone jokes about the white girl on Instagram posting generic shit and whatever. They all post the same shit, and it's funny. But to me, it was like. The visuals and everything was good, but the lyrics itself, it was kind of like, I felt like they could have been better for critiquing. And since they weren't performed on a stage and it was pre-recorded and everything, I just felt like it would be, I just thought it would be a little bit better. But it, I understand it's supposed to be like a different type of alternative comedy i guess in a sense it's not supposed to be your typical comedy which is probably good it's one of those things like it's good to have a diverse uh, range in comedy and you know there's there's a lane for everyone bo burnham is a very has his own lane in general but for example you could look up a youtube video from 13 years ago from him one of his old songs when he's sitting in his room at 16 called i'm bo yo Apple 314, and it's just him and his guitar. And the lyrics in those, in my opinion, were so much more, had more punchlines, more funny. And the simplicity, it was a low-quality type of recording. But the song and everything, the focus was just the lyrics and him and his performance of it. And it seemed like and just off the clips I've seen of the special, um, I saw like two videos and stuff of it. And it was just like, all right, I don't know if I want to sit and watch an hour and 20 minutes of this. I can understand, like, I can respect what he's trying to do, do something different, do something original. But, you know, it just felt like, um, it just felt kind of, it felt kind of bland from what I saw. It seemed... It seemed like the lyrics and what he was trying to do, it wasn't as potent. Even if the message, I think his message on a lot of the stuff, his, the deeper meaning of what he was trying to get behind everything, the subliminal stuff, was very creative and actually very meaningful for the grand scheme of things. But <clears throat> in terms of the entertainment value of it, Eh, I didn't. I just didn't feel it, which was kind of disappointing. Being the fact that I've always loved, <clears throat> I've always loved Bo Burnham's uh, stuff from his songs he's done. Oh, I've seen like an older special of his where he's had a couple specials where on stage, combination of uh, poetry, uh, singing, and actual jokes and shit in the piano, like it was hella creative, hella funny. And it just seemed like, I don't know, I just, it just doesn't, there's nothing about, from what I've seen about the special that would actually make me want to go watch it. And I think it's kind of a reflection of a bigger picture of, I think we've been so exposed to just have everything of everyone. And even though he doesn't put out stuff every week or all the time, because he doesn't do podcasts or nothing like that, but... I think we've just become so overexposed to entertainers and shit like that, that they put so much stuff out that it's like, we got to balance it out ourselves. We got to cut back somewhere. It's like, if I watch all, if I listen and watch all your podcasts, like, how do you realistically expect me to watch all your comedy bits? 
which I know is kind of contradicting because they're shorter, but it's like, I enjoy this version of you more. I like people when they're just, some people like just listen to people that are just everyday life funny and not necessarily comedians like a me. Not really. I'm neither. Uh, let me get another sip before I trip on myself. I don't know Bang is growing on me. I didn't really... I wasn't really feeling the flavor yesterday, but today... What's your flavor? Tell me what's your flavor? What's your flavor? Why that sound like a... That sound like a usher. What's your missing? In your eyes. Sad and fast. I... Don't know what to do without it Cause I hang out with the guys I'm a fine cause I'm in love without it Can't grow I love you You're my girl You don't have to call it's okay, girl, cause I'm gonna be alright tonight, I can give you your peace. By the way, I hope he never, as dumb as it sounds, I hope he never actually comes out with the Confessions Part 3, the song, or I hope he doesn't come out with like another Confessions album, cause I've seen, I do feel like... I don't see how releasing a follow-up to anything 20 years later ever works out good in any field of anything. Like, trying to, it's like trying to reconnect with the ex-husband 20 years after you divorced and haven't seen each other. It's like, you know what? <clears throat> it's probably not going to have the same rush in your bones. And even if it does, it's just for a night. And even though he might break yours, you know, just to bring back the reason why you guys... You know, had to get a restraining order. Stockholm Syndrome's a beautiful thing. Break your arm like Ricky Bobby. Talladega Nights. But yeah. You know what? Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna end this with a movie review. Another movie review. Last one we did Boogie Nights. Today it's Talladega Nights. Um... I actually was the first time I've seen it in full was about a week ago, probably less than a week ago. Um, it was actually Saturday. And I'm not going to lie, pretty damn good movie. I was quite impressed. It's quite engaged. Um, I think I've seen a scene of it too before I've walked in on someone watching it, watched the scene, but I've never actually watched it in full. And it is actually genuinely funny. And it is a... You know what? I'll tell you what I like about it the most. Um, I like the fact that... The dad... Uh, Ricky Bobby's dad... You know, let him come back into his life to actually, like, contribute... To get him overcome. Because Ricky Bobby was literally living off a slogan that um, his dad did say. But he never probably really, he never really meant it. Because he was too drunk to remember ever saying it. And then when Ricky's like, Bob and living off that slogan off you. When they, when he got kicked out of the Applebee's. <laughs> oh, Apple. He got kicked out of the Applebee's the first time because... Um, his dad was basically, they were eating there with his mom, his kids, and him. And they were like, you know what, we should do this every Monday, or it was every Tuesday, or whatever. It should be a family thing we do every week. And the second he heard that, it was like I talked about before, people being self-sabotaging and self-destructive. And he's like, so then he just started uh, causing a scene with the waitress because they, because they put onions on his bourbon steak when he purposely said when he said no onions, apparently. And she was like, oh, I'm sorry, we can fix... He's like, no, I don't think you understand. 
and then he goes in a whole thing, and then next thing you know, in the scene, they show him getting kicked out of Applebee's, everyone restraining him to get him out, and then he starts walking in the middle of the street, and Ricky Bobby starts falling. He's like, I've lived my whole life. I lived my whole life off. He's like, who told you? He's like, live. It was a, if you ain't first, you're last, you know, the famous slogan. And he told him, I've lived that, and you were quitting. You're not being, he's like, who the fuck would tell you that? And he's like, you did. And he's like, ah, I was, he's like, you believe that shit? I don't remember saying that. And if I did, I was probably drunk or high. And, and then even after that, like, this still, and then the, they let him, you want to talk about character development. Oh, character development. Um, I like how they, they didn't just paint him as this shitty person, even though he is pretty shitty father for the most part. But when his son needed him older, even though he wasn't there for the first 30 years of his life or whatever, but when his son made it, became the biggest star, then he has a terrible crash, which fucks him up um, mentally and everything. And to have him at the end, spoiler alert, at the end, when he, uh, after the race and everything, when he crosses the line, even though it's completely illegal to walk across the finish line and count for anything, it doesn't count. Um, and, you know, they go out in the parking lot, and it's him, his kids, and all that. And Sim sitting, and you could tell, like, he wants to, he's, like, saying, like, I'm proud of you. He's like, you you did it and all this stuff. And you tell he, he was saying he wanted to, like, do something with the kids and do and actually be a part of the family. But last week, he just got kicked out of an Applebee's. And then Ricky Bob is like, you know what? I think we should go. Nothing more I would want right now than some Applebee's or whatever the fuck he said. I don't remember the exact lines. And he said, I think you should come along. He's like, I couldn't think of anything better than myself. And he generally seemed happy. And they go to Applebee's and they actually, like, you know, it's corny. Like, people, oh, but Applebee's is an American staple, man. And it was funny to me. It's funny that a movie like that actually had character development across the board since we want to talk about it. You know, I think that shit's corny, but if we want to talk about it, that's a great example of keeping people that keep fucking up in a story just for that one time where they may make it right. And that's a hard thing for people to forgive and forgive. And I'm not saying you should forgive him for basically leaving the kids and leaving, you know, not being a part of their life ever until, but you notice when he came, if you watch the movie, when he came back into Ricky Bobby's life, he had nothing to do with money, which most people, oh, my kid got famous, like, it would be the equivalent of LeBron James' dad tried to come into his life when he wasn't there from the age of two, or whatever the fuck. And try to come back into his life and try to get a couple. Try to be like, hey, you know, I need some money. And on a NASCAR level, that's what Ricky Bobby, he was LeBron James. Um, (laughs) And, but he came back into his life, one, because uh, Ricky's mom, which obviously his ex girlfriend wife ex-girlfriend and she actually called him to get Ricky back on his feet to get the fear back out of him and you know I mean look you did a bunch of dumb shit like put a cougar in a fucking car to not be afraid but he did a lot of dumb shit to get to that point but the point is that he tried for the most genuine of reasons. And since, if you notice, like, it's almost like he didn't feel the Applebee's scene the first time where he gets kicked out. It was a direct reflection of him knowing himself that he doesn't feel he's deserving of this. And it's someone who you can actually identify, like, when you are being treated with forgiveness, but you don't feel deserving of it. 
So you doubled down on bullshit that you did before instead of just accepting the forgiveness and accepting what's trying to be given to you. So you act out, you get kicked out of an Applebee's and you don't feel deserving. And then even then, when they realize that and they're still like, look, come back to Applebee's. We want you there. And that feeling of wanting to be a part of what you once left and what you once left again, that feeling of being invited back. And it's that moment that you could see that, man, like a lot of people could relate to Ricky Bobby's dad in a lot of ways. I'm not talking about leaving your kid or nothing, but a lot of people could relate to the simple fact that we've we've all done things where we've been forgiven by people and we've done things we shouldn't and we don't feel we're deserving so we act out to basically furthermore prove to the person to leave I I don't deserve this and they purposely do shit to hurt them again and a lot of people can relate and that was one of the most humanizing aspects of that movie was Ricky Bobby's dad yeah I know I'm forgetting his fucking name, and they said his name. I don't see. I forget shit like this, but I think Ricky Bobby's at the end becomes a semi-likable person just for the simple fact that a lot of people can relate to the transgressions that happened in the movie, even into a different way. Someone can have someone in your life that's done a similar thing, but it may not necessarily involve a dad leaving kids and coming back. But it's a dad that. Will always be there for his son, even if he wasn't there for 20 years. But a dad that will always be there for his son anytime he's down and out. Because it's like he doesn't want him to follow down the same path that he did. And to fall into a hole. And he still cares for his seed, in a way. For lack of a better word. And I think a lot of people can uh, relate to that. I think Ricky Bobby's dad is a very, ironically, he's a very, at the end of the story, he's a, he, to me, he's more likable than uh, John C. Riley's character, Shake and Bake. Shake and Bake. He's definitely much more likable than the Wolf Ferrell's wife, or Ricky Bobby's wife, who, when he got in the crash and was in the hospital for however long, and then she left him and uh, got with uh, Shake and Bake. I can't believe I'm forgetting their fucking names, but you know what I'm talking about, John C. Riley's character. And really, the most likable characters of them all are Will Ferrell, Ricky Bobby, and his dad. Well, his mom. His mom's probably the most likable. Because she's very... She actually disciplines the kids when they need discipline. Because Ricky had no idea of how to discipline them. And let them get away with whatever. Taught him respect. So I would say it's Ricky and his mom tied for first. And Ricky Bobby's dad is pretty high up there. Because even as shitty as he is from beginning and middle, you can see the stuff he's struggling with that's very relatable as a person that's humanizing. Behind all the humor, behind all the exuberance, behind all the drinking. Like, he's genuinely... Like, the scene where he, uh... He, uh... He put a cocaine under his, uh... Ricky's car. Or, yeah, he put cocaine under... Ricky's car and threw some water in his face. He called the cops saying, Hey, there's cocaine, and I saw someone cocaine or whatever in the car. And he basically has to get out there and take off with the car and escape the cops to help him get out of the mental cycle of him being afraid because he couldn't drive fast after the whole crash and everything. It fucked with him mentally. And by default, it was fight or flight. Either escape or go to prison for like 10 years. He's like, well, you don't have to. But you'll be doing a minimum of 10 years and this and that, blah, blah, blah. So he got in, 
fight or flight, and then was able to escape. And then when he finally escapes and pulls into the woods and pulls under, it's not even cocaine. It's a uh, it's a bag of cereal. I think it was Lucky Charms. Maybe Lucky Charms or Cocoa Puffs. One of those things. But yeah. And you can see, like, his dad does the most extreme, the extreme shit to put a fire under his son's ass to actually get him over the hump quicker. Instead of dragging it out, saying, you know, you just got to take it. It's like, nah, you got to fix this shit now. We got to put you in high-pressure situations. He's really like a good coach. So... I think he becomes like you can see genuinely behind all the extra bullshit that's for comedy. Like you see, he's a father that's trying to get his son out of a bad situation before it becomes worse. Because you know, and I think that part a lot of people can relate to. He's a good father. He be, he at least becomes a father who truly is trying to make a positive change in his son's life, even if he can't repair. Not being there, all that shit. Like, at least he's trying to at least be there for the right reasons now. And not for self-righteous reasons. But, yeah. <sighs> That's my movie review, Talladega Nights. I give it a 7.3 out of 10. And my overall subnosis is that uh, Ricky Bobby's dad is an amazing dad, ironically. Alright, guys. That was episode 39 of the Off and Be Podcast. And uh, you don't have to call because I will not be all right tonight. Hopefully my car gets towed by tomorrow. Never thought I'd be so happy to get my car finally towed. Um, And then give you an update of what the issue is, even though I have a good idea. But I'm trying to be optimistic. Um, But yeah, uh, like, subscribe. Hey, continue the support. Got another... 80 downloads today. Podcast and moving up the ranks. Probably not quite literally, but analytically. So, yeah. Uh, follow me wherever the fuck you want to follow me. IG. All that shit. Alright, guys. Have a uh, great day and uh, suck some titties. Uh, I always love that. <laughs>